As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We, the jury, find the defendant, Daryl E. Brooks, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty, 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 guilty. Guilty on all 76 counts. Justice! (laughs) Justice has been served. Guilty of mass murder at a Christmas parade. We're very relieved. I guess that's the best word is relief. As 40-year-old Daryl Brooks awaits sentencing, Waukesha is feeling strong. I just want to say angels watch over you guys and turn on those blue lights tonight. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hello. And I'm joined by Fox 6's Brett Lemoyne. Hello, Brett. Hey, Brian. And Fox 6's Sam Kramer. Hi, Sam. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, October 27th. And after 12 days of testimony and 18 days of trial so far, there's still sentencing to go, Daryl Brooks is convicted on all 76 charges against him, most notably six counts of first-degree intentional homicide. Brett and Sam, you've been at the Waukesha County Courthouse since the start of this trial, the beginning of October, back on October 3rd. And Brett, I'm going to start with you. It's been a long trial. A lot has happened. What did you see and hear during and after the judge read the jury's 76 guilty verdicts that stood out to you? Yeah, it just seemed kind of like a sigh of relief in a lot of ways. This community has just been hurting and healing for the last 11 months, almost a year now. Um, you know, it, when I was outside of of the courthouse doing live hits for, for our newscasts, it was just incredible to see the number of people that were just driving by honking their horns. You know, there was an awareness of what was taking place at the courthouse. And um, it, it was unlike anything that I had seen up in, you know, since, since the attack itself and since the outpouring of support that the community received, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath, it was really quite remarkable. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of the people maybe that were driving by were maybe community members kind of, you know, maybe out and about their business of their normal day. Um, but there were some family members who, came and showed up to hear what the verdict was. So, Sam, did you talk to some of those people? Yeah, and frankly, there was a lot of family members in court for this verdict day, the most that we have seen really throughout this trial. Um, And the ones we spoke to uh, included the Sorensen family. It's the the family of Virginia Sorensen, one of the dancing grannies who was killed. Uh, And and they were understandably emotional, right? Um, They've been through a lot this past 11 months. And, uh, you know, obviously the... The, the bite, if you will, the quote that, that pulled our attention all day long was from Virginia's son, Marshall. And he told everybody uh, after a press conference that he brought a container with her ashes to court, not on his own accord, but because his five-year-old daughter, so if you're following, that's Virginia's granddaughter, uh, wanted her grandmother to be there for verdicts. Um, it, it was just so touching. They, they had prayed for this day. They had 
uh, really longed for this day. And of course, these are the verdicts that they were hoping to get to. There are so many things about this case that were unusual, uh, that were extreme. First of all, just the sheer number of people who were identified as victims uh, the ones that were included in the charges are those that were killed and, of course, those that were hospitalized or, or injured in some way. But as the DA pointed out after the verdicts, there were potentially thousands of victims here, not to mention the community itself, but people who were at the parade who witnessed these incredibly traumatic events. And I just think about the videos that weren't shown to the public. We didn't see them. They were only shown to to the jurors and, and some of the key parties there. But the video of the SUV rolling over children, rolling over bodies, knocking people into the air. And I just think about the, the trauma of that alone is, 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 is in, in some ways more than you'd see in any case. But then you add to it this defendant representing himself and all of the disruptions and the challenges. When, Brett, when you, when you just put all of that together, can you kind of speak to what a remarkable – spectacle this was for the past few weeks. Yeah. And um, going off of that, Brian, you know, we should point out that, um, you know, while there were the six fatalities and the more than 60 uh, people who were hurt, uh, the the district attorney and the police department had to set up parameters as to how they were going to charge all of these cases, right? Um, so they the individuals had to be on Main Street and they had to have um, gotten medical attention. Um, but I mean, I know personally of people, um, friends of mine that uh, I graduated high school with here in Waukesha that, um, you know, one, one of their uh, daughters had their foot run over uh, by the SUV. They were not among the, the individuals who were listed um, in, in, the, in the charging document because they didn't meet the parameters that were established um, by the district attorney and, and the police department. So when you put it in that context, right, and when you when you think about all the people that um, you know were traumatized, even just watching this unfold, you really do get a sense. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of people, really. Um, you know, e- even just think about um, Waukesha South's marching band, right? Um, you know, it's it's not only those individuals who were hurt, it's it's their parents, it's their friends that were watching, it's their classmates in school, you know, so the, the net gets cast wider and wider in terms of the footprint of, of this tragedy. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's it's mind boggling really to, to really put your arms around everything that, um, you know, encapsulates this this trial. It was difficult as well, every day, kind of boiling down, um, you know, nine or ten hours of, of testimony and um, theatrics, if you will, um, into you know a ninety-second story for our newscast. There's so much that really got left out. Um, but the challenge for me every day was balancing, um, you know, the the important testimony uh, that was given with you know, some of these blatant attempts to distract and delay the, the trial by Daryl Brooks. Well, and then in talking of that testimony, you know, one of the things, and if, you know, you kind of followed along with the trial and watched any of it, you know, you, you saw the people that were testifying, the witnesses and whatnot, and experts. Sam, can we talk a little bit about who testified versus who didn't and the reasoning kind of behind some of that? Yeah, so I actually asked 
um, the district attorney, Sue Opper, about that in their press conference because I, it would seem it appeared very deliberate as we got going. Um, you know, they, they promised they would be efficient, and I think this was a part of that, but also they were very coherently aware of the fact that this is a community that is still healing. And if you go back through each of those parade units, the Waukesha Blazers, the Extreme Dance Team, even the Waukesha South High School Band, it's a lot of children, uh, you know, even uh, young adults. They did not want to re-victimize anyone if they didn't have to. And, and really, you had so many people there, so many direct witnesses. Um, pair that with the fact that there is so much video and photographic evidence um, that they just felt was so strong to this jury of 12 that they didn't need those people. Um, why, you know, set out and, and re-victimize these people, put them on the stand um, in front of, uh, you know, the defendant who is representing himself. They, they said that they had made that decision months ago, but really was only reinforced by the fact that Brooks was representing himself. So um, it, it was clearly a decision made with the community's best interest in mind is, is really what they set it up to be. I was speaking to a victim last night or a pa- parents of a, a child victim, and I thought it was interesting. She said she early on was trying to give the DA medical records from her daughter. Like, here, do you, do you want these? And she said they, they told her they didn't need them at that point. And she thought at the time, why wouldn't you want to show the jury all of this? And she said, you know, we decided to trust them. They know what they're doing. And ultimately, they said they didn't need to present all of that. They could make the case without it. One of the things that stands out to me uh, that I can't get out of my head from from this trial is the the chief investigator from the Waukesha Police Department, who's really the key witness, uh, one of the first people to testify for the state and uh, followed up being their last witness as well. He said there were 300 to 400 pieces of video and photographs alone for this case. And when you think about it, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Everybody had their camera out, right? Just taking pictures of the parade. Um, but I mean, that alone spoke for itself. And and District Attorney Sue Opper had even said, you know, they didn't need to put some of these people on the stand because they the jury could see it. They could see the parade. And that was their closing um, their closing argument to to the jury. The the last thing that they did, um, you know, as as the prosecution was show the jury this edited video um, of of the parade attack um, from start to finish uh, that had been put together by all these pieces of video. It's interesting you point that out because the, the judge talked about technology and how things have changed and how that affected the trial. I mean, on the one hand, you've got all those cell phones recording the crime as it happens. There was also video before and after the parade that tied Daryl Brooks to that SUV from the video at his own mom's house to the music video that he put together, all the way to surveillance videos in the neighborhood that showed him, you know, roaming the streets afterwards trying to to get away and get out of town. But in terms of how technology affected the case beyond just documenting the crime and the attempt to escape, it also changed how the judge was able to deal with those disruptions. Can you talk a little bit about how technology allowed the judge to deal with this extremely disruptive defendant without completely you know, gagging him or banning him from the trial. Well, and that was one of the options, right, that that they had. They could have physically gagged Daryl Brooks in court, and uh, Judge Jennifer Doro did not want to do that and opted instead for um, what I think was a, a, a pretty brilliant solution, which was the mute button, <laughs> which saved, which really saved 
um, her and, and the court's time um, when it was used effectively and, and properly, um, putting him in this adjacent courtroom that was just next door. And so to have him be able to view and participate remotely and to be able to uh, use utilize that mute button whenever possible, I think really truly helped. And, and not only helped, um, you know, the, the discourse, um, but also I think just helped kind of expedite things when, when it was used effectively. So we talked a little bit about the closing arguments for the prosecution and the video that was put together. Um, obviously Daryl Brooks has had, however you want to say it, the right to do a closing argument as well. Um, but based on his antics in court, almost lost that right. So, you know, but then something happened and he was still able to do it. So, um, Sam, can we talk a little bit about what happened with that? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to call it a, a second last hurrah, if you will, um, that what we've seen from him really over the last month is how can he legally, albeit um, frustrating for a lot of the people in court, how can he legally kind of extend what's happening? Um, he said he wasn't prepared to deliver a closing argument, even though the judge told him the day prior to be prepared. Um, he said he wanted to inform the jury of their right, of their power to jury nullification, which, um, you know, is, is this idea that a jury can essentially go rogue, ignore the law, and just decide that the defendant would be not guilty to prove a point, a, a social cause, if you will. There is no legal basis for him uh, being allowed to do that. It was this back and forth bickering, almost like a you know a, a parent lecturing their child as far as why he can't do that. Um, circular arguments that we have seen, again, throughout the month of October. Um, and finally, District Attorney Sue Opper comes up with this um, idea. And she was clear in her press conference, not to say that it was uh, helping Brooks by any way, but she just wanted to move forward. And that is allowing him to give his closing argument. And if he mentioned it at all, that she would object and the judge would strike that from the record. Keep in mind, this isn't evidence anyway, but this is that last impression you leave on the jury. Um, and they went forward with that. Brooks never mentioned it. He got close. He brought up the power, um, but never actually said the term jury nullification. He also tried to bring up a recall on the SUV, which he claims prevented him um, from stopping effectively, um, but that was not brought up, was not entered during the evidentiary portion of this trial, so um, they struck that as well. So, it, and then, you know, Brooks again, he ended up speaking for just about the same amount of time the prosecution spoke for. Again, a very emotional, not really based in law, but more so asking for forgiveness type of argument after all of those antics. Well, and Sam, too, the, the thing that struck me and I think that we need to point out here, too, is that while, yes, it was, um, you know, a, a tearful closing argument um, from Daryl Brooks, he had the opportunity under oath to testify on his own behalf. He forfeited that right. So um, it, it almost kind of seemed like his closing argument was testimony in a lot of ways. And I was surprised that the prosecution didn't uh, stop it in certain parts that I thought veered more toward, um, you know, the emotional 
side of, of things that were really statements that, um, you know, should have been brought up in in, ev- in the evidentiary phase of the trial. But I, th- I think we, we cannot uh, stress enough that he had the opportunity to tell the jury all of these things under oath and he didn't do it. It seems like there was a lot, like you said, Brett, in that closing argument that crossed the line. But I got the sense at that point that the state in particular, and maybe the judge as well, thought we're this close to the finish line. If these are things the jury shouldn't hear, I think the state is thinking we've made a strong enough case. It's not going to matter. What we want to do, what's more important is getting this in the jury's hands. And obviously, if that was their, you know, their sense of confidence, it was confirmed when the jury came back fairly quickly with all 76 guilty verdicts. And I say quickly because with that many verdict forms to fill out alone, much less 100 pages of jury instructions, they really didn't deliberate for very long, did they? No, it was less than three hours in total. Um, You know, they got the case right after closing arguments, um, which was now (laughs) on on Wednesday, I guess is when it was, Um, or Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday at 624, if I'm not mistaken, um, they had dinner. The days all mesh together now. They all run together. They had dinner right after they got the, the case, um, and stayed until about eight o'clock, a little after eight. They asked a couple of questions. Um, they wanted to see some of the videos and photographs and maps that were presented as evidence from the prosecution, most notably the video um, that was taken outside of Corey Insurance on Main Street that showed the SUV going, um, driven by Daryl Brooks, um, through the Dancing Grannies. Of course, four of their members died as a result. Um, but the prosecution, Sue Opper, had said that video in particular really speaks to the intent because, Brian, as, as you know, by the time uh, Daryl Brooks got to that point, he had already hit dozens of people. He had already killed um, two others uh, by that by that point, or, or one other, uh, and the other Jackson Sparks had later died, um, and the video showed him driving at an angle through the dancing grannies. And Opper said, you know, that really spoke to intent, and I think that's why they not only wanted to see that particular video, but they actually requested to see it slowed down, uh, played at forty percent speed. I thought it was interesting, too, the first day that they also requested to see the photo of Brooks' ex-girlfriend, Erica Patterson, and kind of the, the domestic altercation that really set all of this in motion. Because that battery charge is the absolutely last count, number 76. And I thought it, found it really interesting that already, just within the first few hours, They had asked to see that. I thought that was kind of telling. I didn't realize it right away, but I thought that was kind of telling of where they were going. So they were already two count 76 is what you're getting at, that that quickly they got there. Yeah, and, um, you know, keep in mind, too, that there was a 77th charge um, for battery that was, uh, you know, had the district attorney had said had allegedly taken place the day before uh, the parade that was eventually dropped. Um, But, yeah, you're right. And, And, of course... As we know, um, that battery was really the the genesis of of everything that happened afterwards as well. I think that's, for me, when you look back at all of this, that's one of the things about the trial 
that was, I think, maybe of most interest. We, we knew this terrible thing had happened. We knew there was some sort of domestic disturbance. We had a few details, but really finding out what was it? Why did this happen? And I think from the very day one, I mean, initially there was FBI agents were involved because they thought this could be terrorism. And they pretty quickly determined it wasn't terrorism. But we wanted to know why did this happen? And, and then, of course, how did they catch him at the end? But the why really comes back to this dysfunctional relationship that dates all the way back to when uh, his ex-girlfriend was a minor in the state of Nevada and, and Daryl Brooks was convicted of uh, a sex crime and, and became a sex offender um, for getting her pregnant. And here that relationship has found its way into Wisconsin and 15 years later, it's still going on. And then we have all the issues of him getting in and out of jail and the, the bail questions. Ultimately, it just happens to be that this happens in the proximity of a parade and he races off in a vehicle and, and we end up with what we did today. But I, I don't know about you guys, but I really felt like getting that backstory and understanding what happened uh, really added to the understanding of, of the tragedy here. I would agree. I, you know, I think we were right there that night. I can And I can speak to it. I was right there that night. Um, we had a good understanding of what happened on Main Street. We had no good understanding just yet of why someone may have done this or maybe to more accurately put it, what may have drove somebody to do this. Um, so to hear those details come out was really interesting. I, I, I thought Patterson actually taking the stand twice um, was rather courageous given everything that had happened. Well, it wasn't her choice either. Um, and I think that it was pretty evident that um, Brooks was almost gleeful in the fact that he got to question her um, on the stand when she testified for the prosecution. It was her birthday that day as well. Um, they had a lot of, uh, uh, it, it, let, let's just put it this way, their interactions um, on on the stand really underscored their toxic relationship that they've had for you know more than a decade now but then calling her back um as a witness for the defense i think was just really to to rub salt in the wound frankly um one of the things or i'm gonna say one of the things but it happened so many times um during the trial was um brooks would bring up an argument or object to something um and judge dora would say you could bring that up on appeal you can bring that up at appeal um and so that an appeal of this could be a real thing. The DA said that, you know, she was doing everything she could to protect the record. So it's an airtight case and there's no, you know, no issues or anything. Um, but what are some other kind of concerns that there might be surrounding a possible appeal? Well, I think, um, you know, Daryl Brooks has said he's going to appeal. So I don't think it will be a surprise uh, if there is an appeal. But I think uh, Sarah, what you what you said was spot on. I mean, the the fact that Judge Doro made such a thorough record in this case speaks to the appeal process one hundred percent. Everything that they did, it, it was almost like a chess game in a lot of ways because everything that they did, uh, they being uh, Doro and Opper, um, was really being mindful of the fact that an appeal is likely. And and actually, I think Sam Suopper spoke to that in the press conference yesterday, correct? She did. Um, they, you know, they 100% expect there to be an appeal somewhere down the road. Yeah, keep in mind, the, uh, these appeals take time. You're going to have to go through 
Um, that again, that very thorough record, which keep in mind is almost four weeks long. Um, I know the Google Doc with our notes was 278 pages. Now imagine what the court reporter typed. That's a lot. Um, so just kind of looking at everything there, there was discussion. There, there's perhaps concern that because Judge Doro allowed him to represent himself, and then for him to behave the way he did, you know, was that right? Was that just? I think you can make an argument both ways. Um, but there were plenty of moments all the way through this trial where if you separate through his antics, if you separate through his behavior, his constant objections, he is paying attention. There are times he spoke eloquently um, and there are times he demonstrated he understands the law. Maybe he had just you know read it in front of him right there or the night prior, but he understood what was happening. And I think when the judge... Uh, several times pointed out that he was asking good questions, like complimenting him, almost patting him on the back, if you will. I think that was her demonstrating that Brooks is competent. He may not be acting like it, may not be acting, respecting the decorum, um, which so many have found his behavior to be so offensive, but nonetheless, they found it to be a tactic. And I think that's important to separate. A tactic, a delay tactic, his strategy was to disrupt um, and maybe wasn't such a problem of competency. Well, and, and I think uh, one legal expert that I talked to said, in addition to raising the question of whether or not perhaps he should have been allowed if he was competent to represent himself, uh, any attorney who takes that up on appeal on his behalf would also have to make a successful argument that another attorney could have gotten a better result. And based on the evidence that was presented, that's a pretty high bar here too. So the likelihood of success on appeal is not expected to be particularly high, but the likelihood of an appeal, probably virtually certain, considering we've seen that Daryl Brooks seems to fancy himself, uh, you know, a, a lawyer without, uh, uh, you know, w- w- without having passed the bar. Um, so we can expect that's coming. Uh, you know, I want to we could talk about this probably for hours on end, and I, don't, I want to respect you, your time. Both of you have put so many hours into covering this trial. I, I want to wrap this up with with this. Obviously, sentencing is yet to come. We know there's a, a, a you know mandatory life sentence or a mandatory yeah life sentence for each of the homicide counts, um, and a lot of other years that could be piled on top of that. I don't think there's much mystery that Daryl Brooks is going to be sentenced to life in prison and beyond, um, but. I guess my question is, as we await that time, for you, what's the takeaway from all of this, from your experience at the courthouse, from watching this process? And Brett, you as as a member of the Waukesha community, what what is your takeaway uh, from this trial? I'll start with you, Sam, and we'll come to Brett second. Um, I think for me, again, having been there that night, we got to Main Street um, upon word, upon hearing things, and then quickly realized that this was this was going to be something major. To see it from that all the way through, I think a couple things. One, as so many people have said, Waukesha Strong, the, this kind of idea of resilience, strength and unity, and strength in numbers, it was very apparent. Um, and it was very apparent in the courtroom yesterday as those verdicts were read. Um, there were about a dozen or so people that didn't even make it inside. Um, because capacity was full, uh, and they wanted to be there to see this through. So many people told us they didn't feel like, like they could heal until they knew that Brooks was found guilty. And I think that 
is a good indicator of how this community, and, and Brett can speak better to this, how this community has maybe been on edge, kind of waited patiently, but albeit anxiously for a moment like this, um, for it finally to come, you know, we, we kind of watched as the gallery filed out and just large exhales, sighs of relief, hugs, teary eyes, um, kind of you name it. This is the moment that they waited for and it's what they got. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned the sentence, yeah, it's going to be a very long time. Um, and I have to believe that, you know, everyone who was there that day, everyone who knows someone who was there that day is hoping that he gets the max on just about all of that. Yeah. You know, Brian, there were so many people who were at that parade, right? I mean, it was a community event. I've been to that parade. I've <clears throat> been in <laughs> those parades, um, before representing Fox six. Um, you know, I'm a graduate of Waukesha West high school. So, you know, I know what it's like when, you know, the marching band is, uh, out performing and, you know, showing, school pride and uh, just community pride. And I think the takeaway from me is that Waukesha is strong and that there there are so many people that are loving here and that are, are well aware of the hurt and the healing that is still taking place. I think of the victims every night that I put on my blue light on my front porch and you can't go anywhere in this community, truly, without A, seeing those blue lights, and also B, seeing that Waukesha Strong logo. It's everywhere. It's on the back of every police squad. It's on every fire truck. It's in virtually every window of every restaurant and business, especially downtown on Main Street. It's everywhere. And that alone, I think, means a lot to people that live here especially the people that were hurting. Obviously, there will be people who will be suffering trauma from this for a long time to come. But at least now they know Daryl Brooks is a convicted mass murderer. It is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, not easy to do after a subject that heavy, but we do try to have in this part of the podcast, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And Sarah, once again, here to ask us that question this week. What do you have in mind, Sarah? Well, I have four questions. There are four of us. Um, okay, so I'll just, um, we'll go in order on my little Zoom screen here. So we'll go Sam, Brian, Brett. So question number one, Sam, most used app on your phone? Twitter, and this trial proved it. <laughs> Brian. I'm going to probably say it's Facebook. It, it, TikTok is pushing it because I like to watch a lot of uh, stand-up comedy videos, but it's probably still Facebook. Brett? Oh, well, I, I have to um, say that I have a flip phone still, so my personal phone is a flip phone. Wait, what? Uh, yeah, That's I know. Awesome. Hard to believe. Um, but I, I would say for work, yeah, it's probably Twitter or email um, for sure. But uh, but I'm old school. Oh, yeah, bless you. Yeah, I, I forgot about email. <laughs> like, what a horrible app. Actually, um. <laughs> in reality, it might, it might be the the Okta or Okta Verify because you know the the <laughs> multi factor authentic. So I can keep getting into all my work apps that I'm using constantly. That's fair. I was gonna joke that it's like this Team Snap app that tells me when my son's soccer games are and practices. So there's that. Okay, uh, number two. Sam, best gas station snack? Uh, definitely Quick Trip. Um, 
Okay, a little bit of a quick trip hat. You go, you go to the fountain, you get a Diet Coke, but before you get the Diet Coke in there, you take a little bit of vanilla syrup, and it sweetens Ooh. the deal. You're making homemade vanilla Cokes. Hey, man, when you're a reporter and you're working out of a car most days, you need to know where you can get good things. All right, so vanilla Diet Coke. Got it. Brian. Uh, you know, it's, it's also Quick Trip, and I mean, I'm not trying to do an ad for Quick Trip here, but it's... <laughs> There's so many options when you go in there because it's like a mini grocery store. And I we talked about – I don't know if we talked about this last time. I don't know if this came last, up. I think we – okay. I thought we did. we did because that's the whole thing is I go there and I try to pretend I'm going to get the healthy things and I buy like the other – I just did it the other day again. I got like grapes and apple slices. But then I also bought, you know, a bag of chips and a, and a hot chicken sandwich. For me, the hot sandwiches that are always ready – is the is my quick trip favorite. I walk in and, and there are times when I've already had lunch and I'm disappointed because I can't get myself to have another <laughs> hot sandwich, but then I feel like I'm missing out. So yeah, I think it's just like a, a hot sandwich, a quick trip, that's the way to go. Brett. Well, Sam, Sam hit the nail on the head when he said, uh, as a reporter, we work out of our cars primarily uh, throughout the day. And yeah, I'd say my go-to snack would just be any candy on the candy aisle uh, for sure. But I... But to, to add to the quick trip love, I will say they have the cleanest bathrooms. They do. <laughs> they do. That is the truth. <laughs> Seriously, sponsor. Open record. Sponsored by Quick Trip. Get to work on that, Sarah. That makes a lot of sense. We're I'm, giving them all I'm kinds of love here. I'm making a call as soon as this is done. I don't care. Because I was also going to say Quick Trip. Um, Gardetto's. Um, and fount, any fountain drink, really. But Fountain Dr. Pepper is like, mwah, chef's kiss. Um so For Gardettos, do you like the bags that have just the rye chips and none oh, of the I other love stuff? Rye chips. Oh, that, those are that's fantastic. a later in life thing for Sarah, but like I used to be like, "Ew, rye chips," but they're the my, they're my favorite now. Now the breadsticks can go, but those those rye chips or oh, the pretzels, the pretzels are kind of crummy. Anyway, okay. Um, all right, Sam, least favorite smell. Least favorite smell? Uh, gasoline. It it's just always irked me. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I kind of like it. Okay, anyway, but for only from Quick Trip. Sorry. Okay, Brian. Um, Actually, I'm I'm with you, Sarah, that gasoline smell I I like too much, which always made me afraid that I'm going to get myself sick from, like, taking a big breath at the gas station. But no, least favorite smell for me, dog urine. Um, I think especially because I have two small dogs, and if they go in the house, that smell is really hard to get to go away. So, uh, yeah, I think it's probably pet urine, dog or cat, frankly. Brett? Sarah, I hate when I go to get my hair cut and someone at the salon is having their hair dyed. Oh, that that smell, it's it like bad. burning hair kind of almost. It's <laughs> it's a lot. Burning hair is a gross smell. Like if the straightener <laughs> yeah. hits it too hard or the you turn the crank up on your curling iron, it's not great. I was going to also say like anything burnt, like burnt popcorn is really gross for me. Burnt garlic is even worse. Ugh. Anyway, um, so I'd say burnt food. Um, okay, and then finally – on an airplane, window or aisle? Sam? Window. Brian? I think if, I, I mean, preference probably, yeah, window. I like the window. Right. I'm going to go aisle. Yeah, I would say and aisle You can get too. up. It's easier. Yeah, you don't freedom. have to crawl over anybody. Excuse me, excuse <laughs> you me. get excuse out me. faster. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. So I can stand up right away when the plane lands and be the first one in the aisle. <laughs> I just, it, it makes me think of the movie Wedding Singer, and I'm always worried about the cart coming by and hitting my elbow. <laughs> So I, I have that I have that exact same fear. If I fall asleep and my arms hanging out there, I just like being away from. Maybe it's maybe I just want to be away from people at that point. But I like the seclusion of the window seat. That's fine. You're just in an airplane with hundreds of other people. It's okay. That, that's a good point. All right. So that's it. That's number four. That's the one. 
Okay. That's all she wrote. Well, that does it for Off the Record. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Brett, Sam, thanks so much for being here, and thank you for all of your hard work and the coverage of this trial. Thanks, Brent. Yeah, thanks for having us. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and of course, executive producer Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you have not already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week.